Vincent Werbergs, Derby. Well, good evening. My name is Phil. For those of you who don't know me, um, uh, it's great to be here this evening. Um, we are in a little series. We are looking at an ancient story, one of the first stories in the Bible of Joseph. Now, um, I feel like I should share at this point, uh, as a public service announcement, that if you are a, f- a fan of Joseph and his Technicolor Dreamcoat, it is coming to Derby, I believe. So if you really want to go and sing along and enjoy it and do the whole, you know, Andrew Lloyd Webber thing, feel free. All I'm going to say is that in here, I'm not singing. So, so we're, we're all good to go, okay? But we're looking at the story of Joseph and we've been thinking about what it means for us to make choices and what can we learn from this ancient story for us about the choices that we face in the day to day. We... Two weeks ago, we talked a little bit about the fact that Joseph had too many choices. And actually, we feel like that. That sometimes when the choices are just so, there's kind of the choice is so vast that it almost leaves us with anxiety to kind of pick a choice, to make a decision about something and to move ourselves forward. And so we talked a little bit about that kind of how do we choose in the midst of that kind of fullness of too many choices. Last week, Andy talked about what it means to kind of choose when, when actually some of the choices that we are faced with are, are just full of temptation and challenge and difficulty. And we pick up the story tonight, thinking about what happens when it feels like those choices are taken out of our hands. Last week, as the story went on, we heard that uh, Joseph had been in um, working for Potiphar, He had been kind of given all of the run of Potiphar's house to look after everything and to make it all work. And uh, the one thing he wasn't given, of course, was Potiphar's wife. But Potiphar's wife took a shining to him. And and Joseph had a decision to make. She kept making advances and coming on to him, and he kept saying no, 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 until eventually, in the house alone, she grabbed him by the cloak, and he had a choice to make, and he legged it naked. But in making the right choice, in doing the right thing, Potiphar's wife was able to twist the story and get him in trouble. And so that's where we pick the story up tonight. We're going to just repeat a little bit of chapter 39 that we read last week, and then we're going to move into chapter 40. So if you've got Bibles, we're in Genesis 39 and 40. If you don't have a Bible, it's going to come up on the big Bibles in the sky, um, and we'll follow along that way. Chapter 39, verse 20. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favour in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those he held in, in, all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Some time later, the cupbearer and the baker, note at this point it's not the candlestick maker or um, the butcher, it's the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, offended their master, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. 
he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the same prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph and he attended them. After they had been in custody for some time, each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were being held in prison, had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. When Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. And so he asked Pharaoh's officials, who were in custody with him in his master's house, why do you look so sad today? We both had dreams, they answered but there is no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God. Tell me your dreams. Tell me your dreams. Maybe quite a random question to ask someone who's in prison. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you for this ancient story, this story that speaks in so many different ways. And we pray that tonight, by the power of your spirit, you will speak through me to us. Lord, we want to take these words and allow them to speak into our hearts. And Father, we also want to pray for the peace and the prosperity of this city. And so we want to pray for Frank Lampard and Derby County. May they win the playoffs. Come on, Derby. Amen. Some of you might hate me for saying that, but anyway, um, there we go. Um, I've got to be honest with you. I don't like being told what to do. It's a fault of mine. I've got to admit it. Um, I think, and I'd like to say, I mean, I'd like to blame other people for this fault, but um, I grew up in a family. My parents were both teachers, and um, they liked to tell me exactly what to do. They, for, the, for them, academic success was a big thing, so they told me. Um, I'm the third of four kids, so I kind of have that, that middle child syndrome going on, but I kind of share that role with my brother. And um, we had older sister who... Um, I think the correct way of saying it showed leadership potential from an early age. Um, And she also liked telling me exactly what to do. And we had a younger sister who was, well, the princess. And and she would tell everybody in the family what to do. And so it kind of felt like I grew up being told all the time what to do. And I didn't like it very much because um, it offended my pride. Let's be honest. It's my issues. I've got lots of them. Uh, But that kind of sense of being told what to do just kind of grated with me. So much so that age, I think it was about age 13 or 14, I decided to um, pack a bag and run away because I thought that would be better than living my life being told what to do. Now, um, I packed the bag and it sat in the bottom of my cupboard for months uh, because I'm a wuss. And um, I lived in the New Forest and I had no money, and if I ran anywhere, I was only going to get to the forest. I mean, that was it, and like, just a nightmare. So in my head, I was all ready to kind of make this big run for freedom, but it didn't work. Now, I'm telling you all of that because, it's a little bit of the backstory, because when I then went to Vicar Factory, 
where you get trained up to become a vicar. And um, uh, the way I did it is I trained part-time in London and part-time I went to a college in Cambridge, uh, which allowed my mum, the big academic success person, to run around telling her, all her friends that her son studied in Cambridge. Um, now, what she didn't realise is my degree was from East Anglia Polytechnic, but she was able to tell her friends that her son studied in Cambridge. Um, but... Uh, Andy went there, Andy stayed, Did you, were you there for two or three years? Three years. I went for like a week and then I ran away again and then I went for, uh, not, I didn't run away, I mean that was, the, that was the pattern, that was what we did. We were in London and then I think four or five weeks a year we would go and have a time there. And every time I went to college, it felt like I was going to Hogwarts. It was, um, it, I, I don't know quite how Andy survived the whole three years there, I've got to be honest. Uh, for me, I really struggled with it. And there were so many different rules and regulations that it drove me nuts. Right? You can't walk on the grass um, um, because it's just, that would be the worst thing in the world if you walked on the grass. And um, if you wanted lunch or if you wanted food, you had to get to a certain part of the, the uh, college at a certain time to get a card out of one box with your name on it and put it in another box to say that you wanted food, but the food was absolutely disgusting. So I don't know why you would want the food in the first place, but you had to do it, and if you didn't do it, you got in all sorts of trouble. And then, of course, it was just rules after rules after rules, and it brought out the kind of 13, 14-year-old boy in me, so much so that um, when we were sitting in lectures, we would, uh, we would be eating those Skittles sweets things because they were fun and um, we were so frustrated at being told what to do we'd just end up throwing them around the room how sad is this I'm a 30 year old man married with children about to become a vicar and I'm acting like a 13 14 year old numpty sometimes maybe it's just me maybe I've just bared too much of my soul to all of you and you're all looking at me going Phil you need some serious help but sometimes it can feel as though when other people have choices over us, our choices and our freedoms can be taken away and we can rebel and stress against that. Let's be honest, my parents were just being good parents. They weren't doing anything wrong. They weren't being overly the top on me. They just wanted to put in discipline and good procedures in our family and work it all out. And I was trying to, I didn't like it. They were just, of course it's not right for me to stay up all night and eat sweets and do my own thing. Of course that freedom would have been abused. College had to run as a college. It had to run as a community. So of course there was ways to sign in for food and not to sign in for food. And so, of course there were rules. Sometimes the choices that are made and taken over us are for our good and for the good of the community in which we are part of. But sometimes the choices that are made over us aren't. And it can feel as though we are being restricted and hemmed in. Joseph, his story is one of choices that have led him to this place. Choices that other people have made over him. His brothers hated him because his father had chosen him as favourite. His brothers were going to kill him, but then they decided to make the decision, instead of killing him, let's, let's flog him for a bit of money. Let's sell him into slavery. In slavery, ends up in Potiphar's house. And whilst Joseph tries to make good and right decisions, the choices he makes then gets him in trouble. And he's thrown in prison. Choices that other people have made have removed Joseph's freedom. Suddenly, he is in a prison cell 
going, other people's decisions have led me to this. I have no freedom to do or to live or to follow the dreams that I had. And I wonder, for us this evening, what, what are the, the choices that have been made perhaps over us that have left us feeling as though our freedoms have been taken away from us? Maybe you, maybe you were born into a dysfunctional family. Maybe you didn't have 11 brothers who hated you and sold you into slavery, but maybe an absent parent or an overbearing parent or an older sister with leadership potential. Maybe, just maybe, there's been an injustice done over you, an abuse, something that's led to you being placed in a position that you would never have chosen that other people have decided to play, put upon your life. Maybe it's a health thing. Not so much a choice, although it could have been, but just a health thing that's going on in your life that you feel has restricted you and led to your freedoms being limited. You can't do what you want to do because of this illness or this problem. Maybe it's a relationship. A relationship that has left you kind of, the choices that have been made have left you stuck or actually a longing for a relationship that you've not got to yet. Maybe it's finishing your degree, getting your studies done, getting, doing all the essays and the dissertations and everything else that you feel you have to be done. It's kind of stifled you and limited you. And the unknown about what you're going to do for jobs. Maybe the, thing that, the, the freedom that's been taken from you is a, is, a, is a boss that sits over the top of you who is doesn't see everything that you do, who demands too much from you, who kind of limits your choices and your ability and you feel stuck somewhere because of the choices that other people make over you. Whatever it may be, you might resonate with the story of Joseph. Longing to be able to be free to make the choices for yourself but stuck in a place where you are limited. I think there's three things that we can pick up from this story of Joseph that we've read this evening that can help us change our minds about what that place looks like. That place, if we're honest, sometimes is the place of suffering because of the choices that other people have made. Let's just think about three of those things that we learn, learn from Joseph. The first one is that I want to say that Joseph knew that God was with him in the suffering. Some of you might go, hang on a minute, how can, how can God be with Joseph when he's in prison? What does, what does that possibly look like or what does that possibly mean? But in Genesis 39, verses 20 and 21, we read this. Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison... The Lord was with him. Some of us may say, well, hang on, I can't be in this place of suffering and God still be with me. Surely if I'm in this place, then God's abandoned me. He's, he's left me. A God who loves me wouldn't ever leave me here. But for Joseph, he knew that God was with him. With him in the midst of his suffering. 
But what does that mean? Because Joseph didn't get out of prison at that point. See you guys. Joseph stayed in prison, but God was with him there. If I'm thinking that God's with me in the midst of my suffering, I want that suffering to be ended, to be removed, for suddenly me able to have freedom to live out my life as I want to live it out. The passage goes on. The Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favour in the eyes of the prison warden. Joseph's put in charge of other people because of the kindness that is shown to him. The prison wardens who go, okay, we can, we can use Joseph. There's something about him that it can be useful here. I sometimes think that when we have gone through suffering, when things have been said and done over us that's restricted us, some of the stuff that we learn helps us to help others. I saw a, a thing on Twitter yesterday, and it was all over the BBC News website, about um, His Royal Highness, the Duke of Cambridge, Prince William, or Willie, as I like to call him. Um, he is doing an amazing stuff at the moment around mental health and is speaking into that. He set up a, a charity called Shout, I think it is. It's a text charity for those people who are suffering with mental health issues, and you just feel as though you need to be able to talk to someone, but talking is difficult, so texting is easier. And so he set up this charity, and if, and if that's you, I encourage you to use it if you feel like you need to. But he's doing this um, TV show, which is about to come out, and this was a kind of a trailer to the show that's coming. He's, he's met with a bunch of... Um, professional football players or ex-professional football players, and they're talking about mental health. In particular, I think it's to help men to be able to discuss certain things. And William talks about, um, talks about bereavement. Someone who went through such a public, horrific bereavement when he was a young kid is then able to speak into it in this situation. I'd like you just to watch this and see what you think. I think when you are bereaved at a very young age, any time really, but particularly at an age like from resident trusted to that, you feel pain like you're out of pain. And you know that in life it's going to be very difficult to come across something that's going to be even worse pain than that. But it also brings you so close to all those other people out there who have been bereaved. So you instantly, when you talk to someone else, you can almost see it in their eyes sometimes. It's a weird thing to say, but I can, you know, somebody's Particularly me, someone's desperate to talk about grieving, you can kind of pick up on it quite quickly. Yeah, they want to talk about it, but they want you to go first, they want you to say it's okay, you know, they want to have a permission that in that particular conversation one on one, it's okay to talk about grieving. Because I think, particularly in Britain as well, we are nervous about our emotions, we're embarrassed sometimes. You know, the British sit up and think, yeah, that's, that's great, and you need to have that occasionally when times are really hard, that there has to be a moment for that. But otherwise, we've got to relax a little bit and be able to talk about emotions because we're not robots. Um, I slightly disagree with Prince William, if I'm allowed, about the stiff upper, the stiff British upper lip thing, or whatever it is, British stiff upper lip thing, that's it. Um, and I understand why he says it, completely understand why he says it, but uh, actually I think we need to be able to talk about our emotions all the time. But it's, I find it fascinating that for someone who would have said perhaps that his freedom and his choices have been restricted, that stuff that has happened over him that has placed him in a position where bereavement comes and suffering comes, he is then able to use what he has been through to help others. Joseph was in prison and the Lord was with him. 
He was shown kindness and favor, and therefore he was able to care for others under him. God was with him in the suffering. May he be with you if you are in the suffering. The second thing I want to say is that we learn from this is that um, in the midst of this story, God was teaching Joseph in the suffering. Um, at the beginning of the story, when we pick up Joseph's story, we hear that he has these two dreams, and he has dreams of um, corn bowing down and then stars and the moon bowing down to him, and he goes and tells his brothers. I think it's verse, uh, chapter 37, verse 6. It says that, it said, Joseph says, listen to this dream I had. And then in verse 9, he says, listen, I had another dream. He, he didn't understand that his kind of pride and his arrogance and his boasting was going to wind his brothers up. Hey, I've had this dream. You're going to bow down to me. It's all going to be brilliant. That's his attitude that we find at the beginning of the story. But as we get to this part of the story in chapter 40, something has changed. Chapter 40, verse 8. We both had dreams, the uh, cupbearer and the baker said. But there is no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, and spot the difference. Do not interpretations belong to God. Tell me your dreams. There's a change. Something has shifted in Joseph. He's gone from being a boastful, bragging person about having dreams to going, okay, I think God can interpret this. There's a sea change within him in that moment. God is teaching him through the fact that his choices and his freedoms have been restricted, that actually he is learning what it means to trust and be dependent upon God. And what I think is fascinating, if we read on in the story, so the cupbearer and the baker have these two dreams. Joseph goes on to interpret them through what God says to him. Both of these dreams come true. The baker is killed. But the cupbearer goes back to Pharaoh, working for Pharaoh. And Joseph says to the cupbearer, don't forget me, please remember me. Go and tell Pharaoh that I can interpret dreams and I'm in here for the wrong reasons. And the cupbearer forgets him. And then Pharaoh has dreams. Dreams about seven sheaves uh, of wheat, wheat or something and then seven, um, something about cows, fat cows and thin cows, which I think is the only time I'm allowed in church to say fat cows. But anyway... Pharaoh has these dreams. No one can interpret it. No one can make sense. He calls all the kind of magicians and the interpreters of the time to come to him and to understand it. No one gets it. And then the cupbearer goes, oh, yeah, I remember there was this Hebrew guy in prison. He interpreted my dream and the, and the baker's dream. And both of that, exactly what he said came, came true. So let's go and get him out of prison and ask him what he thinks. And they drag him up before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh tells him the dreams and says, I've heard that you can interpret them, Joseph. And if I was Joseph at this point, I would, if I'm honest, I'd probably go, yeah, I can. But Joseph says exactly the same thing to Pharaoh, to the people in authority above him who have all the power, as he said to the cup, baker, the cup bearer and the baker who were below him in his care. In chapter 41, verse 16, Joseph says this, I cannot do it, Joseph replied, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he requires. It is the same answer. 
what Joseph has learned about trusting God to interpret the dreams for the people kind of below him is the same answer he gives to the people above him. Joseph has learned something so deep and powerful that is setting his life upon. That he, it's not about his skills. It's not about his abilities. It's not about his dreams and his desires. It is about trust and dependency upon God who loves him and who is with him and who has created him. And so Joseph puts that into play in every situation. God was teaching him in the suffering. In James, in the New Testament, James chapter 1, verse 2, we read this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be made mature and complete, not lacking in anything. In other words, that you may have learnt, you may have changed, you may have grown into what God has for you through the trials and the suffering that you are sat in. Paul, writing to the Romans, the church in Rome, chapter 5, verse 3, says this, suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God wants to teach us. God taught Joseph. And when you feel as though your choices have been removed from you and you are sitting in a place of suffering, know that God is with you and know that he can teach you there. The third thing that I think that we learn and we pick up in this story is that you can be successful in the land of suffering. Now, this might be the bit where you've gone, oh, hang on, Philip, I'm with you with the first two points, but successful? No, 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 I don't understand that. It says in in the end of chapter 39 that Joseph was successful in all that he did. But he didn't get out of prison straight away. That didn't happen for him. We read that after Joseph has been in prison for some time, chapter 40, verse 1, then the cupbearer and the baker turn up. Then in verse um, four, I think it is, it says that after they, they, so the cupbearer and the baker, had been in custody for some time, and then the beginning of chapter 41, we read, when two full years had passed. So we have some time plus some time plus two years. I don't know what some time means. Is it a day or more than that, whatever? But what we know is that means it's longer than two years. Joseph's still in prison. He's still there, and yet he's being successful in the land of his suffering. Successful in what? Successful in his care of others. But I also want to suggest to you this evening that success is a mindset shift. For some of us, when we're stuck in a place where we feel we are restricted or our boss just hasn't seen what we're doing or we're stuck somewhere because of a situation in our lives, we get bitter. We get angry. We want to complain. We want to perhaps bring other people down with us. We want to kind of set this kind of, the world's got to be put to right because I'm stuck here. Success flips that around. 
in Joseph's mind. He becomes humble. He learns. He learns to trust God. Joseph's story goes on. And eventually he does interpret Pharaoh's dreams. And because he interprets that there therefore means that there will be seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine, Pharaoh goes, this is amazing. Thank you for telling us. And Joseph then steps in himself and says, well, I, what I really think you need to do, Pharaoh, clever move this by Joseph, what I really think you need to do is you need to put someone in charge, someone who can collect all the stuff in and then kind of distribute it out, ration it out so that we can get through, the, with the seven years of plenty, we can get enough so that we can get through the seven years of famine. And, and Pharaoh looks at him and goes, ah, yeah, I should employ you. And so Joseph gets put in charge by, uh, Pharaoh puts Joseph in charge of the whole of Egypt not just Potiphar's house anymore, but the whole of Egypt. He is giving out rations to everybody. And then there's a kind of like a little Brucey bonus for Joseph. Pharaoh gives him a wife. Take this woman. And he has two kids. And I'm going to absolutely butcher the pronunciation of their names. But I think the first son he has name is Manesh, maybe. And apparently, and this is what the scholars tell us, is that the word manesh, if, if pronounced correctly, sounds like the Hebrew word for forgotten. It's almost like when Joseph had his first son, he said, oh, I want to forget my past. I want to forget everything that has gone before and place me here. But then his second son, his second son is called Epaphraim, I believe. Epaphraim, Epaphraim, who knows? And again, the, uh, the scholars tell us what this word sounds like. And Joseph himself goes on and tells us in chapter 41, verse 52, it writes this, the second son, he named Epaphraim and said, Joseph said, it is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. First son, forget the past, forget the pain and everything else. Second son, ah, oh, fruitful. I've become fruitful here. I want to suggest this evening that you can be fruitful in the land of your suffering. You can see success. It may not be what you think it looks like and you may continue to be trapped in a land of suffering. But you can be successful and fruitful there. God can use you in that place for his purposes. If you want proof of this, let's look to Jesus. Jesus suffered for us. We've just celebrated Easter. We've gone through the pain of Good Friday, the Garden of Gethsemane, the, the, the fear of what is coming, where he sweats blood. And yet Jesus goes to the cross, whipped and punished and beaten for us, suffering, immense suffering on our behalf. And yet in the midst of that land of suffering for Jesus, fruit comes. Salvation, healing, God removing the barrier between us and him, God dealing with the sin of stuck in our hearts and in our world and going, I'm gonna, I want to pour out my love and deal with the problem of the human heart and I'm going to bring you back into relationship with me. There is fruit in the land of suffering and there is fruit in your land of suffering if you will trust God in the place that you are, 
if you will continue to learn trust and dependency and allow him to tell you that he is with you there. If you're able and willing, can I invite you to stand and can I invite the band to come back and join us? Um, I don't know, I know some of you, and I've spoken to some of you, and I know some of your stories, that's the privilege of being a pastor, but for a lot of you, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know how you would describe the land of suffering for you, or where you feel like the choices have been removed from you and your freedom to be able to live out how you would like to live your life. But I know that God knows. And I believe passionately that he is with you in that situation. And so we want to pray. We want to ask God to come and meet you in that place this evening. So if you're willing, can I I invite you just to close your eyes and maybe to hold your hands out as though you're receiving a gift. And I'm just going to pray the ancient prayer of the church and invite the Holy Spirit to come and allow him to minister to our hearts. And for some of us, that may mean tears. Because as we wait on God, we might sit in the pain of the place that we're in. And I want to say to you tonight that this is a safe place. We are family together. If tears come, let them come. As Prince William encouraged us, sometimes we need to be real with our emotions. So come. Holy Spirit, come. We just wait. I think for some of us this evening, God is just wanting to say, I am with you in that place of suffering. If that's you, I just want to pray that you receive that tonight. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you come and do something in us. Lord, we know the pain of the situation we face. Oh, Lord, we know it too well. And it feels at times as though you have abandoned us. But Lord, we want to pray that we may experience and know your presence with us in the land of our suffering. Lord, this is not an academic, intellectual exercise. This is us opening our spirits to connect with your spirit so that we may encounter you.
Come, Holy Spirit, we pray. We long for your presence with us. And I want to pray for those um, this evening. I'm just going to ask you to do a bold thing, in particular for those perhaps who are struggling to trust God in the place that they're in. Um, I, think, I think there might be some of us tonight who just want to say, okay, God, I'm going to trust you here. I'm going to make that choice. Um, choice to believe that you are sovereign over us. Choice to believe that you have purposes for me in this place, whatever it might be. So if that's you this evening, I'm going to ask you on the count of three just to raise your hand because we just want to pray a blessing over you. This is, we're, not, we're not going to do anything weird. We're not going to ask you what the, the suffering is or whatever it means like that. But it's just a physical declaration on your behalf to say, Lord, I'm going to trust you. I'm, I'm surrendering this to you. I can't do anything else but you in this moment. So if that's you, just start to raise your hand. One, two, three. Raise your hand where you are. It's a kind of act of declaration of faith and trust in the position that you're in. I see those hands. That's amazing. Loving Father, for everyone who's raised their hands and for those of us perhaps who are a bit too scared to raise our hands, Lord, we pray that we may know what it means to trust you. Lord, we want to, we want to put a marker in the sand right now. Lord, we trust you in this place. We trust you in the land of our suffering. Lord, will you teach us? Will you shape us? Will you mould us? Will you help us to help others, to care for others? And may we know your presence with us. Help us to choose trusting you, not just tonight in the midst of a church, church service, but every day, every moment where the pain hits us. Lord, we trust you. We trust you. Come, Holy Spirit, we pray. Help us. 